Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. One of the great themes of this book that we have been seeing in Nehemiah is godly leadership. Nehemiah is proving himself, showing himself that he is a godly leader. We do not look past that very fact. In chapter 1, we saw how the Lord has been raising up this godly leader. God stirred Nehemiah's heart by the troubling news of the state of Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem. So God was raising him up. It caused him to pray for months and months that God would make things right, that God would use him, that God would somehow provide for his people. He prayed for months. Nehemiah faithfully continued to serve the king, King Artaxerxes, day after day, bringing the cup to the king, and yet still praying and seeking the Lord for the Lord's will to be done and to fulfill his promises amongst his people. In chapter 2, we saw how in the Lord's providence and in the Lord's time, that in the most terrifying Nehemiah's life, the king asked him a question, terrifying. Why are you sad for me? You don't want to be discontent before the king. That's a big no-no. But this godly leader doesn't make an excuse for his sadness or ignore the truth, but he firmly tells the king the truth. The state and the condition of his people, a faithful, godly leader, acts. The king asks him another question. So what do you need? What are you requesting? He makes the request before the, before the king. He makes that request, trusting in the Lord. And the Lord answers his prayer, providing richly for him and for God's people and for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the city walls and the gates and all that is needed through this king. God had prepared this leader. God had raised up this leader. God has shown provide for this leader. Let's look at chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 9 this morning, and we'll read the rest of the, the chapter together. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's orders. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servants heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, and to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Gresham, the Aram, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. There is usually an unfortunate reality that surrounds successful leaders. Good leaders, faithful leaders, leaders who are worth exemplifying, leaders who are worth following, are usually leaders who had to prove themselves under the crucible of hardship, suffering, oppression, and leading in the midst of crisis. History is full of leaders who stood courageously, who led armies and nations, who led men and women into victory and into freedom and out of oppression. Leaders that we have, that we know, like George Washington, who was first commissioned by the Continental Congress, Continental Army against the British Empire, the greatest war machine of that time. And after leading the Continental Army in victory in the Revolution, he was then elected first president of the United States and again was called upon to lead a new and very fragile nation. And he gave us an example of what a president should be. President Lincoln led our country through unbelievable hardship and difficulty as a nation. A leadership leadership that cost Lincoln and his family pretty much everything. 
great leaders like General Douglas MacArthur and George Patton from World War II solidified their seal of being great leaders because of being leaders in great crisis in the worst time in history. Or two, just after the Germans stormed through Europe, they captured all of France and all of Europe was quickly falling beneath Nazi occupation. And the only thing that stood between the Nazis and the rest of the world at that time was Great Britain. Winston Churchill, one of the greatest leaders of all time, in the greatest crisis of the 21st century, addressed a nation, a fearful and very weary nation that was about to face war. He famously said, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. Leaders lead. Leaders show the quality of their leadership and the quality of their character and their virtues that they are people of principles in the midst of crisis. If they have no principles, it is quickly known. The situation for Nehemiah here is not much different. Hardship, oppression, crisis. Nehemiah was heading back to a nation that was in shame, that was trouble, that was in disrepair, that was under the oppression of these governors that despised them as a people. Nehemiah was somehow going to have to get this people who have shrunk down into despair, who were lethargic and without a vision, to stand up and do as they have been called to do. How would he do this? Well, in chapter 2, between verses 8 and 9, we have no details once again of the four-month journey or so of Nehemiah back to the region, except for the fact that Nehemiah is sent back by the king with not only the official letters that we knew he was going to receive, that he received back in the earlier parts of the chapter, but he is sent back with a military escort. What is interesting here is to juxtapose the position that Ezra had, who purposefully did not request a military security, because he had already spoken very clearly to the king, King Artaxerxes, that the Lord would protect him and his people. But this doesn't make Nehemiah any less weak or any less faithful or not trusting in the Lord as a leader. Nehemiah was right in not accepting security, just as Nehemiah was right in having it. Nehemiah's first stop with his security in everyone else as they got to the region was to go to all the governors that were there in the region and give them the letters from the king. The authority by which he has been sent. And this does not go over very well. Who is this guy? Just like in Ezra, we saw in three different times where God's people faced direct opposition. Now, here, 
by name. We are introduced to these governors who are actively working against Israel and have been actively working against Israel. It says they are greatly displeased that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That is such a revealing statement, isn't it? The audacity. Who would care about these people? You could hear their anger, their bitterness, their vitriol against them. So very familiar is the opposition against God's people, God's will, and God's kingdom is not new. We could point all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where there is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. No wonder they are facing this opposition. The seed of the serpent is raging against the seed of the woman. In verses 11 through 16, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. He rests for three days and then by night... In secret, he, just, he takes a discreet tour of the city. And what does he find as he tours the city in secret? He finds a city in destruction, complete destruction. Walls destroyed, gates burnt out. It was exactly what he had been told. And it was worse as he thought. One of the reasons why he did this in secret was because he didn't need to make public the real reason why he was already there. There was already mounting oppression. Nehemiah, like any leader, will lead his people to follow him. And for him to have them to follow him, he needs to understand exactly their plight and exactly what is going to need to be done, the exact action that was going to need to take place, the, the plan that needs to be set in place on how this was going to be accomplished. But more importantly, how could he convince people who have been living in this city to come alongside him, to follow him, who is seemingly an outsider, a, a, a guy who works for the government, to come and follow him, to come and work hard, to come and make sacrifices, to come and face opposition and persecution. How would he convince them to follow him. Let me turn the question around then for us. Brothers and sisters, what has made you to want to be a part of the church? Not just go to church, but to be a part of the church. Why would you want to give up each Sunday morning. Why would you want to give to the work of the church? Why would you want to work 
in the life of the church? Why would you want to bear with one another their problems as much as you're bearing with your own? Why do you want to follow Jesus? What is your motive to persevere in this Christian life? Why should you be bold with the gospel and tell other people about Christ and tell other people about their sin and the glory of God and the redemption and the reconciliation that comes through Christ, knowing that you may face derision? As Nehemiah toured the city, what was needed to be done to building the walls You know, Jesus tells us of a builder who wishes to build a tower. He would not not be wise if he was going to build a tower. He would not be wise at all if he did not sit down and consider the cost of whether he could build it or not. Have you counted the cost of the work? Have you counted the cost of discipleship? Have you counted the cost of following Christ? What is your motive to be faithful and to follow Jesus Christ? I think this passage helps us three ways with different motives in being faithful. Our first motive is our distinct new identity. After Nehemiah's secret reconnaissance reconnaissance missions, he he counts the cost of the mission, what it's going to take to build. And he makes an initial plan at this point, but he doesn't bring anybody in yet, right? He doesn't let anybody into into the, the plan. But what verse 16 tells us is not only he hasn't let everybody in on the idea of the plan, but also that tells us that he is going to need everybody to accomplish what God has laid on his heart. How would he get everyone on board? Well, Nehemiah is a skilled leader, and he knew how to inspire them. In verse 17 and 18, he motivates and inspires his kinsmen to come along and no longer suffer derision and no longer suffer, but rather to pursue the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So first, what is he doing here? First, he he brings everyone in together. That this trouble isn't just his trouble. This trouble isn't just their trouble. But this trouble is all of our trouble. That this is all of our responsibility. He says, we are in trouble. Let us build that we may no longer suffer. He is one of them. He is not just an outsider sent by the government. He is not just playing a politician, but he is one of 
them. This is a shared responsibility to repent and to rebuild together. The motive in this shared responsibility that he gives to them is not just shared, but it's ethnic. It's a national pride that he says to them, this is our city that is in ruins. Our gates are burned. Our walls are torn down. It is our house that has been disrespectful, disrespected. And this is a very powerful motivation in the hands of a godly leader whose sole motive is for the glory of God. Now is the time. How much more can, can we take of this disrespect? How much more can we tolerate the rest of the world laughing at us and treating us as, as people, as not the people of the Most High God? Do you remember when young David showed up to the battlefield sent by his father to take some groceries to his brothers. And he finds the army of Israel cowering down in their trenches. As the, as the Philistines were taunting them, as their champion, Goliath, taunting them. And what's worse, insulting the Lord of Lords. That's suffering derision. That's, that's being mocked and, and jeered. And when David heard these words as just that young boy in the curses of the Philistines, he was appalled. And he challenged Israel's army. How could you sit there and tolerate this? David didn't tolerate it. Y'all know the rest of the story. He stood up to Goliath. This kind of motive of national pride wasn't just patriotism. But it is a call, a reminder to remember who they are. A call to remember their identity. To remember whose city this is. To remember who they are, because if you remember who you are and whose you are, then you will remember your sense of duty to be faithful. Why was the city of Jerusalem in the state that it's in in the first place? It's because Israel had forgotten their identity. They had forgotten who they were. Now, they didn't forget their names. They didn't forget their, their religion and their rituals and their practices. They didn't forget their history or their places, but they forgot who they were in the Lord. They forgot who they were to the Lord, that they were God's people. Throughout the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, there is this same ongoing reminder to God's people to remember over and over who they are. Even the church is often called and told to remember who we are in Christ. In one of my 
favorite chapters in all the Bible, Colossians 3. It is very helpful in reminding us who we are, remembering our identity. In, chap- in Colossians 3, as we see in several places in the, uh, throughout the Bible, we see how the indicatives of our identity derive the imperatives of holiness and sanctification. Meaning the doctrinal truths of Scripture, the theological facts, these indicatives that we are taught are not just knowledge that we're to put away, but they are the very things that drive our desires to fulfill the biblical commands and obedience, the imperatives. For example, God is holy, indicative. That's fact, that's truth, that's theologically correct. God is holy, therefore you be holy. Imperative. In Colossians 3, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul tells us to be heavenly minded, to seek the things that are above where Christ is. But he also says to put all sin to death. Whatever is earthly, Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, and more. To mortify the desires of the flesh, to put to death the desires of the flesh. But then in verse 12 of Colossians 3, he sets out for us the acts of sanctification or the vivification, the replacing of the sinful desires that are on the, that are the sinful desires of the lust of the flesh, and we are to put them to death and replace them with the things that will produce and cultivate life. He says, put on then, this is Colossians 3.12, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and believed, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, verse 14. Put on love, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in on the body. That's vivification. I love this chapter. But all of this, the mortification and the vivification, the imperatives of chapter 3 are based upon a very important foundation. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Those that have been raised with Christ, those who are in Christ, meaning our imperatives of mortification and vivification, putting sin to death and sanctifying, going into sanctification and being obedient to those things is all based upon the person of Christ who has raised us up. And that one verse, Colossians 3, 1, is actually based upon the foundations of Colossians 1 and 2. Colossians 1, it tells us about the preeminence of Christ in creation as creator, head of the church, sustainer of all things, the one who has reconciled us by his flesh. 
In chapter 2, we have been made alive in Christ, saying, And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision that made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. God has done our raising of life, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. That's an amen moment. I know I haven't stopped reading it. But that's like, amen. He made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the debt the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You have been raised with Christ. We are not merely being encouraged or pushed to moral motivation in order to be raised with Christ. That is not the gospel. In fact, that's the opposite of the gospel. Because we are incapable of morally renovating ourselves internally. It is because we have been born again in Christ. Raised to new life in Christ, which means now we are no longer who we once were. You are no longer who you once were. Now, you are alive, alive in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. We have a new identity of no longer slaves to sin, death, but in Christ, in Christ. And this new identity then is what drives the imperatives of mortifying this flesh and sin that we are no longer enslaved to and to vivify righteousness. The motive for our endurance and our perseverance is that in Christ we are made new. And we have a new identity as being adopted sons of God, given new hearts. <coughs> and that changes everything. As Israel needed to be reminded that we are God's people. Brothers and sisters, we often need to be reminded of our new identity in Christ. To remember who we are. To remember whose we are. So that we will be prepared 
forgiveness. Our second motive is that we have a glorious leader. Verse 17 tells us of the city walls that needed to be rebuilt so that they will no longer be a disgrace. But today as the church, God's name is no longer at stake in a city with walls or not have walls or a city with gates or without gates. God's name is not at stake because of buildings, but God's name is at stake in the lives of his people who are the new temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. Our call, our command from our Savior is not to upkeep and build external walls and external gates, mega fortresses of church buildings that would, that would, in a sense, keep us separate from the world. But our call is to guard our hearts and our minds, to guard our, our eyes and our ears from being overcome by the world, to guard our marriages and our children, to guard, our, to guard and watch over one another in love. Maybe today your life looks a lot like what Jerusalem would have looked like that night. Gates burned, walls destroyed by the enemy, and walls and gates that were on fire left completely helpless to the, to the ravages of the world that may come upon you. Again, the Lord raised up Nehemiah and sent him to excuse me, his people. But we need to hear from a greater leader than Nehemiah. A leader who can deliver you from, <coughs> excuse me, from, <coughs> excuse me, from all the danger you are facing with crushed walls and burnt gates. Nehemiah was there to help, to lead, but he could not deliver them it was the Lord who delivered them. But there is one who is more zealous for God's name to be hallowed and glorified. There is one who desires for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. That is the zeal that led Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come and lay down his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Hear the good news, that our leader is our glorious Savior, and he in himself has completely and fully accomplished our salvation, our redemption, our forgiveness of sin, our right standing before God, our new position in our identity. Because he took our death, 
He took our place as our substitute on the cross. We follow Him. We count the cost. And when we count the cost, we will find every time that He is infinitely worthy of all of our lives and all of our devotion. A glorious motive indeed is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, the mockers will come. Yes, the opposition will rage against us. Yes, the enemy will seek to subvert the truth. Yes, lies will be told, as these guys did in Nehemiah 2. And God's people will be marginalized. Long-suffering and derision will come. The governors jeered and despised the people of God, questioning their motives, even accusing them of sedition and insurrection. Christians face accusations. Christians face persecution. Oftentimes, I think more often than not, the accusations that we face are the ones that we face in our own hearts, that we are guilty of our sin. And we feel the shame of it because we are sinners. But what we need to understand is that just like Nehemiah stood and overcame their slander, our good Savior, our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, has taken upon himself all of our shame, and all of our guilts. And when he comes again, he will set all things right. All the jeering, all the derision, all the scorn, this too will be made right. God's people will suffer derision in this life. Suffer derision on top of the broken down walls and the burnt up gates of our lives. But does the world know who we are by our love? Do they know who is our Savior by how we suffer well the derision for His namesake? Do they see the gospel, our new identity in our relationships, in our marriages, in raising children, Do they see in us a love that is willing to sacrifice and lay down our lives for one another? Our motive to be faithful is our glorious Savior. We look to Him. We look to Him who has been faithful before us the author and perfecter of our faith. And we put him on display for all the world to see, to see who we truly delight in, to see who we truly rest in, to see truly who we love. Do you want to be faithful? Do you want to be renewed? Do you want your walls and gates to be rebuilt 
then look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look upon Him. Gaze upon Him often. Let your motive be to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lastly, when we consider our work before us, our motive is knowing that our work is the Lord's work. We have not only the task to endure this life and to just persevere to the end in faith, but we are commanded to go. We are commanded to, to make disciples. We're commanded to proclaim the gospel in hopes that, that others will come to follow and delight and cherish Christ as, as, as we do. What we see here in Nehemiah and what we see throughout the Bible is the promise of divine approval and divine help in the task before them. The plan to rebuild wasn't just Nehemiah's plan, it was the Lord's, verse 12. So when Nehemiah tells them what he does in, in, in verse 18, nothing could have been more reassuring to them of the very hard work that will be before them. That it's not only the work for them to do, but more importantly, the Lord would be with them. And that the Lord would be working on their path. Verse 18 says, And I told them of, my, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So what is Nehemiah doing here? He's giving testimony. He's, he's standing up and giving testimony of how God has been working in his life. And as God has been working in his life, it had been for their good as well. He spoke how God had raised Nehemiah up, put him in the position as cupbearer to the, to the king, provided then through this king richly to have the authority and the resources to get the job done. The proof, the proof was right there before him. The very fact that Nehemiah was there. The very proof that Nehemiah is holding the papers that King Artaxerxes gave himself. These written documents that he could show them. Guys, here is the proof. Here is the proof that God is moving. You can be certain that God is with us in this project and that no matter how difficult it might be or no matter how uh, oppressive we might, we may, oppression we may face, that God is with us. That God is working through us. This is what it means. Again, a precedent that flows throughout Scripture for God's people. That God is sufficient for his people. And if God calls us to do something, commands us to do something, he will sufficiently empower us 
to be obedient. And the sufficiency of God is a very powerful motivator. Nehemiah, as a good, godly leader, filled them with a vision of the greatness of God who is sufficient to help them with the work. Because there's nothing too difficult for him. Brothers and sisters, the work of the gospel is far better than a work of rebuilding walls. It is far better that we, it's far better what we strengthen ourselves to than what the people strengthen themselves to do. We must strengthen then our hands and our hearts for the work that we have set, we have set before us. Our Lord who is just as sufficient for them, is sufficient for us. We don't have documents from our president telling us what we can and can't do. But brothers and sisters, we have documents from our king, the king of kings, who has told us that what to do. And he has told us over and over and over again. You are my people. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. I will be with you. Over and over. That all things work out for his glory and for our good. That he is with us that he has given us his Holy Spirit to endure, to walk in holiness and faithfulness, to encourage and build up one another, to guide us in proclaiming the gospel. Our work is the Lord's work. And he has given us everything that we need because he is sufficient. So brothers, sisters, may I implore you to study your Bibles. Study the document from our king and pray and ask for guidance on how we and how you can be used of the Lord in answering our prayers, how you can be used in the Lord's work. He is with us. He has called us to this work, and he will provide that we would accomplish his work for his, to, according to his will and for his glory, because his work, or our work, is his work. How else could we face opposition. How else could we endure in the Christian life? How are we to fight sin? How are we to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel with the lost and, and making disciples? 
Well, you have been made new in Christ. And a new identity. We have a glorious leader who has gone out before us. And one day he will come back to get us. And our work is the Lord's work. And the Lord is sufficient in that work. Those are our hearts. That is why we come. That is why we devote ourselves. That is why we sacrifice. That is why we give. That is why we work. That is why we bear with one another. That is why we love one another. That is why we endure. And we do all of this knowing, as Nehemiah said at the very end, his response to the morons of verse 19, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord will make us prosper? And I don't mean prosper in the goofy world that you'll get a BMW or a nice truck. That's stupid. And you know that. I don't have to tell you that. But I mean prosper and flourish in Christ. You know what I call prospering? I call prospering persevering to the end. A couple weeks ago, I went to a funeral of a 95-year-old woman who faithfully persevered to the end. You don't go to many funerals like that anymore. That's prospering. Seek that kind of prospering, and the Lord will answer your prayer. Do you believe the Lord will make us prosper? That'll make you prosper. And if you do, how has the Lord already prospered you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it would continue to speak to us, Lord, and call us to faithfulness, reminding us of our identity in Christ pointing us to our, our glorious Savior, our glorious leader in Christ, and that how you will be with us and work through us in our endurance and in our work. Lord, would you continue to call us, our just shirt, sovereign grace, to faithfulness in the Word of God? Continue to, to, to purify us Continue to use us, Lord. Would you use us in all the ways that we can to, to, to build one another up, each other's walls and gates spiritually, but also take the gospel to the nations. And Lord, be with us as we respond now that we are an encouragement to one another. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.